Kia ora, my name is Mark Easterbrook and you're listening to Going West Audio. For your enjoyment, education and inspiration, we've opened up our archives, queued up the tapes and unearthed the best oratory, discussion and performance from 25 years of the Going West Writers' Festival. In this episode, acclaimed poet and actor Peter Bland joins Paula Green on the Going West stage to talk childhood and children's poetry. Okay, kia ora tato. It's lovely to be here. Um, and I'm so delighted to be on stage with Peter. Um, we've already seen Peter, which was wonderful. We've already had a taste of Peter reading for Graham Lay this morning. Peter is a, an, has been an actor, a playwright, memoirist, critic, and of course a poet. He's written numerous um, poetry collections that have been highly acclaimed. Um, and a couple of poets poetry books for children that I think are absolutely gorgeous and I know that Peter knows how to write a poem for a child. Last year Steele Roberts published his collected poems and he has been awarded the Prime Minister's Award for Poetry. Something he doesn't know is that this week on, I've got, a, I've got two poetry blogs, one of them is quite a fledgling one called New Zealand Poetry Shelf. It's not been going that long. And this week I interviewed Bill Manhire, and I asked Bill Manhire, amongst many other things, to name three favourite New Zealand poems or books, and one of his three was by Peter. It was My Side of the Story. I thought you'd be delighted to hear that. Very pleased, because it was yeah. my first book, 1964. Yeah. yeah. yeah so um, Nice to think it's still around and people yeah. still read it. And I was also doubly delighted about this occasion because it's not very often that you get children's matters on stage at a festival. The title of this session is Here Comes That Children's Pond Again, and I loved that word pond. And then it said Paula Green and Peter Bland traverse, I love that word traverse, the world of childhood and poetry in general. And I thought, what a terrific occasion to be able to sit up here and chat, and you just happen to be sitting there eavesdropping on whatever we decide to talk about. But I thought, what it, what's the best way to launch this um, occasion? It's by reading a poem for, for children, which kind of, I'm actually used to sitting on stage and reading to hundreds of school children, and so it's, it's quite different that there are adults out there. Right. But in fact, yeah. it'll be, I think it'll be right. quite lovely. So do you want to kick start with a poem? I will, but uh, first of all, I've got to find my glasses. Oh, uh, shall I it's read okay. while no, you keep, yeah, um, read while you keep looking? I have this trouble with glasses and umbrellas. and uh... <laughs> Yeah, OK. <laughs> Sorry. So you <laughs> found them? Paula. Yeah, you'll oh, go for it. Yeah. You go for it. OK. Then. I'm going to read a poem, um, uh, Paula said, to read a poem, about, uh, we're going to read poems to start with, a poem about our childhood, and obviously we've, we've uh, childhood's great because it's something we've all got in common for a start, and uh, uh, I think our childhoods will be totally different, uh, as all childhoods are, um, so I'm going to read a poem called The Pond, you mentioned The Pond, uh, Here Comes That Childhood Pond Again is an opening line from a poem of mine. But um, this pond is in Staffordshire in 1944, where I was, um, during the war, was sent out to stay with people. To, uh, and then later on, uh, my parents worked in the munitions factory. Um, I came to New Zealand in 1953, but uh, obviously my childhood is back in England. So I've got this split world of, 
uh, of my life here, uh, my adult life here, and my adventures here, and then this strange mythical world of childhood which takes place somewhere else in another country. This is called The Pond. It's Staffordshire, 1944. A star falls quietly into the pond. Two jackpike nibble a new moon. It's getting late. I'm out of bait. Time to reel in a long, hot day. So where did I leave my bike? Was it under that old hawthorn tree or down by Lawton's farm where pretty land girls flounced their skirts and laughed out loud when I ran away? At noon, the pond fell asleep in the sun. With a plop of my float, something slid under reeds like a giant eel and was gone. All day, green waters barely breathed. After dark, does the pond wake up? What shall I tell them when I get home about where I've been, what I've seen, that giant eel? Not that they'll ask. There's a war on. Mums and dads have no time for ponds. But what happens here wants to be passed on. So I'll probably mention the falling star and the crusted cowpats where I sat, and the jackpike with their savage teeth, and the land girls with their gypsy laugh, and the long ride home in the lampless dark with barn owls hooting. And I'll leave it at that. <laughs> I loved that line, it's getting late, because, you know, childhood, you try to squeeze every moment out of the day, you try to make the day last as, as long as possible. And I thought I'd read um, a poem from my first children's book, Flamingo Vendolingo. What's special about this book to me is that I'm an author of it, but so are 50 children. And I went into a school and did workshops from year 0 to year 8. Then I designed a poetry trail at Auckland Zoo, and I had my 50 poets. And we went on the two-year adventure of making a book. And I've never stopped doing that ever since, working with children. So I thought I'd actually start by reading a poem by one of the, the children poets, um, Caitlin, who when we launched the book, I love telling this story to children when I visit schools, we launched the book in Auckland Zoo and said, you know, you can invite 200 people free into the zoo. My publisher got a chocolate cake as huge as the table. And the zookeepers were going to read poems. But they were scared. They were shaking in their boots. And Caitlin, who was only seven, said, I'll go first. She gave the zookeepers courage. And this is the poem she read. A wild cat. The tiger is endangered. Sometimes scary, but might be friendly. Sometimes it goes slowly, but watch out, it can pounce at any time. The tiger likes to live in long grasses, like its long tail. It likes to jump and pounce, but it checks on things that it's curious about. The tiger is like an orange, with black stripes like licorice, and unripe skin on its stomach. It's got whiskers like a cat, because it is a cat. But it's not a house cat. It's a wild cat. <laughs> so, you know, working with children a lot, it takes, often takes me back to my girlhood and, you know, the things that I love to read and the things that I love to write and my favourite places. And, you know, it was interesting last night hearing Charlotte Grimshaw pick... <laughs> The sewer pipe is, is this kind of key symbol and, and motif and physical thing that she played on in her childhood. And I just thought it would be nice to paint a little picture. 
um, of what our childhood was like. Right. As, and very different, as you Very said. different, yeah. yes. Um, yeah, my childhood, I was, my childhood was uh, spent uh, just, I suppose, I was born in 1933, I think, so I, I was, my childhood was just before the war, during the war, which was in England, uh, and just after the war. So it was quite a bleak period and uh, quite a... Uh, I didn't have a stable home. I was moved around all over the place, so I never knew who I was or where I was. Uh, it's amazing how children are able to accommodate with a, those shifting circumstances. Um, uh, and I suppose that I managed to do the same. Um, I have vague mem- I lost. I lost my parents when uh, I was um, fourteen and fifteen. So, um, and then I stayed with various relatives and aunts. But my m- m- means of escape was wandering in the English countryside, whether it was in Yorkshire or Staffordshire, and um, learning how to be how how to be alone. Uh, I think children have the ability. Uh, if they're pushed, if they're pushed into it, to learn how to be alone, to learn how to live in their own imagination, and to get very close to something old and primitive and uh, wise, and uh, uh, which might uh, uh, they, they don't want to lose. I think what poets and children have in common is their ability to be fully at home in the moment. Mm. Um, and uh, I've tried to keep that going. Uh, in my poetry. I'll, I'll read a poem about... Um, oh, I have a little note here. Look at this. Remembering what uh, this period in the war. I often think that uh, about that all-alone-and-going-nowhere feeling that haunted so much of my youth, the desolation of feeling permanently stranded in some mind-numbing hinterland of life where everyone treated me as incidental and which I knew had nothing to do with who I really was. <laughs> this is a poem called Angel. There's an angel in our apple tree and an elf lying dead on Garnet Road. This news was brought by a four-year-old with grave concern for these visitors to our lovely but still troubled world. The elf turned out to be a flattened frog, but the angel wasn't so easily explained. A trick of the light, perhaps, on a sunny day, under the apple tree's breezy shade, with bees' wings whirring, even a feather falling, and a ladder I'd never seen before, reaching up through glittering leaves, as if expecting angels to be there. Mm-hmm. I love that, that idea of roaming. I saw an exhibition at the Auckland Museum a number of years ago with my daughters when they were younger. It was called The Wild Child. And it was so nostalgic going back, and it reminded me of that roaming that I did as a child that my daughters didn't have the same access to. And mm. in a way, you know, it wasn't just a physical roaming and, and going to those favourite places like the creek at the end of the street or that apple tree that you like to climb as high as you possibly could. But it was also the roaming in your imagination. And one of my favourite things, and I've never thought about it because I've never sat on a stage and talked about children's writing before, and the origins of me, 
And I re remember back to my poor family subjecting them to an endless puppet shows and plays that I would write and assign parts to and rope in, you know, my siblings and my cousins and all the children in the neighbourhood and then perform them for parents, you know, endlessly that would go on. And I can see there the seeds of me as a writer <laughs> in, the, in that roaming, you know, physically in, in the countryside and taking risks that I don't think our children have now, but also in the imagination. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I asked myself, um, uh, coming here today, if anybody asked me, what's the difference between um, uh, writing a, a poem for children and writing a poem, a, a grown-up poem, even a grown-up poem about children? And I suppose the first thing you think is, well, intention, I suppose, is the first thing. Uh, you know, you intend to write a poem. You, you intend to write a poem for a child, or, or you know you're writing a poem for a grown-up. Um, and um, I, I made a little note here: use of language with children's poetry. Um, well, I think with children's poetry, immediacy. You know exactly. You know exactly where you are, even if you're going right back to the early stuff, like you know, Mary had a little lamb. Little Jack Horner sat on a corner. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. You're right there, aren't you? I mean, there's no messing around. You're not in for long. You're not in for any um, uh, uh, intellectual discussion or uh, anything like that. You're straight into this world, and it's that immediacy and finding words to earth that immediacy uh, that I think he, that I think is the trick of writing for children. Uh, children's verse, children's poetry never translates. I mean, you can translate adult poetry and you can be quite free with it and, and get the feeling across, but it's almost impossible to translate a, a child's poem written in one language into another language. It doesn't want to go that way. It wants to stay where it is. Um, um, you, you don't with children's poetry... Um, what have I got here? Uh, the words are earthed in the imagination and physical context of the poem. They're not there to um, engage in intellectual discussion. There's no, they don't discuss God or sex or politics or money or death. They occur in a landscape that is prior to such adult concerns, where joys and anxieties are dealt with in a completely different, almost mythical way. Um, uh, this. A couple of poems by Margaret Mayhew, um, which I'll read later on, or, um, but uh, they come straight out of this world. People say to me, well, a lot of Margaret Mayhew's poetry is not very New Zealand. Well, it's, it's how you read them, and New Zealand will, re will read them and see a New Zealand scene. An English person, a child will read it and see an English scene. You, you know, they exist in this prior world that allows itself to be imagined prior to a border or prior to a to a landscape i think and i think this is one of the great freedoms of writing one of the great imaginative freedoms of of children of yeah. children's verse I can i just read okay. this is you see she writes um uh, i love this poem by margaret once upon an evening looking overhead i saw a little crescent moon like a silver thread then rocks burst into blossom and horns blew sweet and shrill and kings and queens in scarlet came shining down the hill. It's a wonderful poem because suddenly the ground opens up and all these figures come from this, this deep primal world into our world. They come down the hill dressed as they want to be dressed and full of, full of the energy that children like. 
And that's, that's the, magic of, uh, the, the magic of a poem like that. Yeah. I think it, it was. It's an interesting question. You know, I mean, I write for children and adults too, and um, a children's author who I quite admire, Lemony Snicket, who wrote a series of unfortunate events. He's just put together a portfolio of poems for children, and they're all adult poems, and they've been they've got gorgeous illustrations. And then at the bottom of each poem, Lemony Snicket writes something in his Lemony Snicket kind of way that's witty about each poem. But at the start, he has a little intro, and he says something that I love that poems are like the curvy slide in the playground. And I've often thought, at the beginning of Flamingo Bendelingo, I compare children's poetry to the playground because, to me, it's a place where you jump and slide and slip and swing and have fun, and you play. And, in fact, play is the most important word for me whatever I write, whether it's a thesis or a review or a children's poem. But then he said something that, that irked me, and he said that... Um, People who write for children specifically never get it right because they don't get the right tone. And I just thought, what a load of rubbish. You know, when I'm going to write poems for children, I just, it's like shifting into a different thing. And my study fills up with all those children I meet when I visit schools. And, and the most important and fundamental thing for me is that I play and I have fun and that becomes infectious for the child who's going to engage with my writing and, or I'm going to kickstart their writing. And, and the second thing that is fundamentally important for me is sound. Poetry, whether, actually whether it's for adults too, mm. it sounds, it's got to hook your ear, it's got to be deliciously sweet in your ear and it might have repetition thinking back to the nursery rhymes that were so alluring when we were young. It might have rhyme, and rhyme can behave in all kinds of ways. It can be Dr. Seuss rhyme, the cat who wore the hat that sat on the mat and was so very fat, predictable and comforting. Or it can be tricky rhyme, the crocodile with the... Um, I can't think of a tricky rhyme now. My mind's gone blank, but you know. And you can hide the rhyme. It doesn't need to be on the end of the line. So to me, sound, it is so comforting and children love it. Yeah. So I think, you know, there are keys to writing, writing poetry for children and I think it does make a difference that... I think Peter and I both think when we write for children, the fundamental primary reader is the child. And if adults happen to like it, great, but it's a secondary thing. Absolutely right. When I, I've just been in the middle of a glorious job, which I have got wonderful poems from Peter for. I've just been editing a treasury of New Zealand poetry for children, which Random House are publishing next year. And I got sent hundreds and hundreds of poems um, by, by adult writers. And it seemed to me there were two species. These writers got it, these writers didn't. And it all come down, comes down to exactly what Peter was saying and that sense of play, that sense of fun. And on that point, I think we should fill the room with a few, few of your children's poems and then maybe <laughs> a few you. of mine. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, it's, it's, it's absolutely correct. It's the voice. Voice is the way a poem comes into the world. And, and when you watch uh, children reading, um, you, you can see their mouths moving. They're already doing that. They're already speaking the poem as they go along. And, um, yeah, I'll just read a couple of kids' poems now, uh, which, as Paula said, I'll try and find poems that have uh, got that sense of fun. I think that's sense of play and sense of fun. The kids respond to that um, 
so well. I just so, have to well. say that these are two of my most favourite children's books, um, poetry books in New Zealand. They are magnificent. <laughs> Thank you. Well, that's uh, the gulls fly high in the night kite. Mm. Um, yeah, if I, if I can think of that poem... You've got so many good ones, it must be hard to choose. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is called Rhymes, and the kids seem to like this one, because kids love rhymes. Let's start with jelly. It's a wobbly word that rhymes with belly. And uh, smelly, of course. And my old Aunt Nellie, who's also wobbly and works in the deli. <laughs> when she's not at home in front of the telly, being wobbly and eating jelly and thinking of her brother Kelly, who ran away with a girl called Shelley who works small world in the very same deli as wobbly, telly-loving old Aunt Nellie. Words run around as light as a feather. You think of a few and put them together. Mm -hmm. Very good. Our dog Charlie. Our dog Charlie is such a softy that sparrows eat their breakfast perched upon his back. No one's scared of Charlie. He smiles when he's asleep, dreaming of days in the country being rounded up by sheep. <laughs> glad. I'm glad. I'm sad. I'm bad. I'm mad. I'm glad, sad, bad, mad. And don't you forget it. There's a unicorn in the garden. There's a unicorn in the garden. There's a dragon in Dad's shed. There's a mermaid in the paddling pool. There's a giant in my bed. There's a pixie in the doll's house. There's an angel who's lost her wings. There's a homeless gnome who's starting to moan, trapped in the rubbish bin. What are they doing in our street? Why have they come to town? Aren't they afraid that cats and dogs will howl and hunt them down? Perhaps they've come to say farewell. Perhaps they're the last of their kind. Perhaps there's nowhere left in the world where imaginary things can hide. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Um, okay, so I'll read a couple. Um, children say, you know, where do you get your ideas from? And I usually say, well, I wake up in the morning and I open my eyes wide and I get, get my ears flapping because I never know where the idea's going, going to come from. But this one came from a fact at Auckland Zoo. The Bonmar cat, some kind of monkey, has a cheek pocket in which it stores food and that was the stepping stone for my imagination. <clears throat> the Bonmar cat and omnivore. What does the bomb market keep in her cheek pocket? Does she store the rocky shore, a dining table in the horse's stable, comic books and clucking chooks, basketballs and outlandish falls, DVDs and TVs, snowboard and Aunt Maud, lollipops and circus flops, snorkeling gear and a grizzly bear, sharp scooters and football hooters? There's no couch in her cheek pouch, for in her larder for a starter, she hoards a one-stop shop. Luscious food for every mood. Mm. <laughs> <clears throat> and, um, you know, there's something really pleasurable. I mean, I think I got a couple of little tiny laughs as a Kerner reader last night, but, you know, when you read with children, you get lots of laughs, and it's, it's quite, you know, um, it's a wonderful thing. Um, this poem, I hid 
this is kind of playing around with rhyme in an indirect way, and it's called Where the Mild Things Are. <clears throat> and before I read it, I always ask the children, I mean, if the lights were up, I'd say, now, tell me the name of your favourite book when you were little. You would tell me the name of your favourite book, and we would all go, oh... Oh, it'd be like fireworks in the room because we would be filled with nostalgia and warm feeling as all these book titles of children's books floated everywhere. <clears throat> Only four schools in New Zealand so far have guessed all the titles in this poem. The book came out in 2009. Where the mild things are. Last night I heard the wind in the meadows talking to the lion in the willows about Captain Holypants and the Lord of the Rungs. The wind said he had found a chamber of secrets, a very hungry cat, the caterpillar in the hat, and George's marbly medicine. The lion said he had found elastic Mr. Fox, an iron, an itch, and a bathrobe, and a series of fortunate events over the pea and under bones. <laughs> And I also love, um, I'm just going to read you two poems from um, a new collection of coming out next year called The Letterbox Cat and Other Poems. I love doing kind of po poems that I can get everyone in the whole school saying with me, like this one, Pea Waka Waka. Jump tail, hop tail, dance tail, skip tail, pop tail, flip tail, boogie tail, woogie tail, fan tail. So you can imagine 600 students <laughs> saying that. And I just tried these poems out actually on a school this week for the first time. I always love to try my writing out, um, and I do it on my children's blog, New Zealand Poetry Box. I love, I kind of expose myself as a poet on that. I, I show them, oh, I'm writing this poem, I'm not sure how it's going. And I show them my daily life and, and my writing life as a writer, and they write me letters. So it's, it's kind of, it's, it's a completely wonderful thing. So I've just, you know, it's always really nerve-wracking when, when I go there, and this is the first time I've read a poem. So this is the second time I've read this poem, and, and you're adults. But anyway, when I am cold. When I am cold, I get goosebumps. When I am very cold, I get tiger bumps. When I am very, very cold, I get rhinoceros bumps. When I am very, very cold, I get elephant bumps. When I am very, 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 very cold, I get whale bumps. When I am very, 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 very cold, I drink hot chocolate and wear thick socks. <laughs> Kids are very practical in the end, you know. <laughs> you get all these magical things, but it ain't always ends up with hot chocolate and a biscuit. <laughs> Have you got something else to eat? Rats in the batch. Yeah, I uh, this, that uh, yeah, yeah. The kids, um, they sent me. Uh, some of the schools made a, a CD of it and set it to music, oh, nice. and all the kids joined in, like you, yeah, yeah. like you were saying, yeah, and that yeah. was really exciting to get that back. Rats in the batch. Rats in the batch. Eels in the drains. Kia's in the kitchen. Mozzies when it rains. It's ages since we've been here. The bedrooms buzz with bees. Mice have chewed the table and the carpet's full of fleas. Ants nest in the pantry. There are wetters in the tea. Spiders have spun silk curtains to hide our view of the sea. It happens every summer. We scrub and dust and mow. But just as we finish cleaning up, it's always time to go. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, um, we've, we've talked about the way poems for children, 
you know, the sound matters and, and the playfulness and that hooking into the imaginative life. And I do think the subject matter is important. You've got to get the right subject matter that's, that's going to hook their interest. But you can, you know, I tried this poem out on, the, on these children this week. And you can, do, you can do poems that make them sad. I've got some sad poems and I've seen them, you know, start to have a tear dribble down. And I've got little tiny thoughtful poems. I mean, I always make them little um, so they don't go on. This is one of my little tiny thoughtful poems. And it's like, I think, I loved what you said, Peter, about getting into the moment. And this is like a getting into the moment poem. A slow sky tonight. The clouds are moving across the sky like tiny snails. The trees whisper tiny secrets that nobody can hear. And a pink light lights up the faraway hills. Dinner is nearly ready. <laughs> so, um, you know, we don't write out of nowhere. Um, you mentioned Margaret Mahi, and, you know, she's, she's just my inspiration for writing um, in so many ways. Um, and have there been any other writers that, you know, have, have kind of fed you? That, well, you know, while, you're talking, while you're talking, you sparked something. It reminded me, I was asking myself, when did I first start writing children's poems? And I first started writing them when my children were growing up. And I'm talking about a period before television, you know now, late 50s, early 60s. Well, before, before everything, really. <laughs> before washing machines, before CDs, before uh, you know, air travel, before before the pill, before everything. Um, and uh, uh, my kids were growing up, so um, I found them an inspiration. Uh, again, times were, not, were fairly bleak. Uh, I had three young children, and I, I didn't have hardly not a lot of money. And uh, I suddenly moved to Pukaro Bay and uh, fell in love with that elemental landscape. And uh, my children were a real inspiration, and I think they were responsible for a big leap in my own imagination into the, into the world of adult poetry, simply by seeing and watching um, how their own imagination worked. And the first real poem I ever wrote, called Death of a Dog, was written about, uh, in Taita, in 1959, about um, uh, my daughter's dog dying. In fact, mm. um, and uh, it started off um, a real leap in, in the way I could suddenly was able to b borrow, really, a steal their way of looking at things. Death of a dog. Sally is dead, and the children stand around like small white lilies. Someone in a terrible hurry has ground her red tongue into unaccustomed silence. Now, all that was so much living lies like a mound of wet rags, freezing beneath my daughter's rough, excited hands. It is no risk for her, this going near, a silence she cannot understand. Frank as forever, she's wandered out beyond all thoughts of our complaining and stands there pouting, puzzled to believe that one who partners her adventures still lies at daybreak in a tangled sleep. I tell her this is death and leave it at that. She doesn't weep, but runs repeating what she's learned to all who listen. Women up the street spare kindness. Grief quickens them like a cup of tea. 
Their men more urgently cram early buses. Life bursts into nicotine and diesel oil. She feels her message meets with mild reproof and so returns to that child-crowded scene where all was black and white, but finds someone's removed the death she runs to greet. Tonight there'll be a burying, and tomorrow a gap in the world to watch her cram with pleasure. Can I read one more? Yeah. Um, uh, it's called The Happy Army. Um, shortly after that poem, I got carried away. And, this, <laughs> and uh, this is about one of my child's drawings. The Happy Army. The child has a vision of the happy army. He's carefully sketched in my appointment book the smiles, the fingers, the boots and guns, his happy army wave like rattles. No one's dying, no one's bad or good, and even the one at the back has a medal, while the generals beam pure love. The sun has rolled to the ground, has been caught up in a growing air of excitement that runs riot, filling the sky with rockets and bits of old tanks. It's natural that everyone, everywhere, faces the front not out of discipline or to scare the enemy, but in frank expectancy of applause. <laughs> and of course, this is why this particular army is happy, why no one dies, why the sun shares in the happy army's happiness and rolls down to earth. It's why I run towards the boots and guns, why I come as far as I dare to the edge of the paper, to stare, to stare, and to cheer them on. <laughs> I think it, um, yeah, it's amazing how um, this session has kind of made me think about things that I've never thought about. And yeah. what sparked you was first starting to write for children. I can remember the moment when I first started to write for children. And I'd been at university. I, was, I went to university when I was 30 to do one paper. And I don't know how many years later I left because I loved it. And I kept doing one more paper. Then I kept doing one more degree until I did a doctorate. And then there were no more degrees left. And then I got the university fellowship for a year. And then that was it. I had to leave. And I can remember I had a little cardboard box filled with my things. I walked out of the arts building at the University of Auckland onto Simon Street. Nobody noticed. Nobody noticed that after all these years I was leaving. <laughs> and I just felt this kind of curious mix of lightness and freedom and into my head popped the idea I'm going to write a collection of poems for children and I'm going to get children to help me write it and I just thought oh my goodness how am I going to do that and I kept walking up Simon Street to my car thinking I'm going to do it and that was the start of going on it and, and I, I think you know we started off by saying it does make a difference when you write for children and when you write for adults, and it does. But at the same time, there are so many things in common. That yeah. whole idea of sound, the whole idea of play. And for me, there are two other things that I need to add to both things. And, and the third thing is heart. I write with my heart. I write out of love, whatever I do, whether it's my thesis or my book review or my poem. And the other thing, which is a little bit surprising, but there were hints of it in my reading last night, I write out of rebellion because to me, 
There are no rules in writing poetry. Every rule is a rule to be smashed apart. There are no models to be beholden to. And I feel the same for fiction. I feel, you know, you just go for it. And when I was at secondary school, my English teacher in year 12 stood over me with her pursed lips and said to me, Paula, you are never going to get anywhere in the world writing as you write. When I stood on this stage at the University of Auckland and wore that funny hat for your doctorate, I just thought, take that, English teacher. <laughs> and so I'm going to read um, two adult poems too, and this one comes out of that experience, and it comes out of me sitting in the in the school hall when James K. Baxter stood on the stage a week before his death and read me poems and I went home and thought I want to write. So that's where this comes from. Beam. Sunlight on the tamarillo trees, heat spreading. The English teacher's lips pursed, my words a wonky overcoat she dismisses with a flick of her tongue. I have lost my balance, my sentences never true on the beam. James K. Baxter stands alone on the school stage, long hair, scraggly beard, tatty clothes, feet bare, moss on the plum branches, and he reads like a tui. His sonnets take to the air in the school hall with the restless feet, the restless eyes. That night I write a James K. Baxter poem to test my pen. Seven days later, he is dead. I paint the scruffy vagabond's portrait in blue, pin it to my wall and write seven sonnets as an awkward floor routine. Thirteen years later, my mother sends me a copy of The Bone People, and I can smell home, not in the violence, nor in the tender love, but in the way the words leave the school beam and take flight. The second um, poem that I want to read you, which is um, kind of synchronicity or curious lucky chance, I've got a poem in this book called The First School Journal Ever. And it feels very topical because I'm feeling really angry at the moment about what might happen to the school journal. And I, I'm going to post this poem on the Facebook page and I'm going to sign the petition because I want to fight for that. And I think it's a travesty if this Taonga of our nation gets demolished and destroyed. We've grown up on it, our children are fed on it, and I feel like protesting enormously about what might happen. Um, and I, at the top, I've written three, you know, you know, so many of the big events in the world are those big events by the white men, aren't they? And I, I thought the first school journal should be there. <laughs> the first school journal ever. John Butler was, this is like a little in italics, I don't know what you call it, you know. Piecing. John Butler was the first European, uses the first European plough in Kitty Kitty. Winston Churchill names the first day of peace. Hillary and Tenzing are the first to reach the Everest summit. In a dark room with echoey wooden floors and desks with lids that lift and ink wells filled with radiant blue, with high windows and high ceilings to fit the bounce of her imagination, a small child opens the first page of the first issue of the first volume of the New Zealand School Journal. 
a bridge beyond my garden's back fence. The sharp sweetness of new pages quick to my nose, the comforting sound of rain on the glass windows. I could ride a camel or nurse the wounded soldiers. I could make a birdhouse or visit Fox Glacier. I might imagine what it is like to be somewhere on the moon. Uh, I, I worked to the school journal, um, and the staff in those days, and back in the 19, late 50s and early 60s, what an amazing staff. Um, uh, Alistair Campbell, mm. uh, James K. Baxter, mm. Libby Johnson, myself, and... Uh, Jack Lazenby. Jack Lazenby. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> incredible sort mm. of uh, staff for a school journal. I'd just like to end up with one very short point for my part of it, um, and uh, I think you might like it too, actually. Uh, it's it's my, my ultimate um, comment on poetry in general. And what, said the emperor, does this poem describe? It describes, said the poet, the cave of the never-never. Would you like to see what's inside? He, opened, he offered his arm. They stepped into the poem and disappeared forever. <laughs> I think that's a, a lovely way to end our discussion, and I think we've got time for a few questions. And I'd just like to plug my... If you, if you have children in your life who love writing poems, I've got lots of flyers dotted around from my blog, New Zealand Poetry Box. I welcome children sending my poems, entering my competitions, and, and following me. So yeah, direct your children to Poetry Box, and yeah, let's have a few questions. Please wait for the microphone so everybody can hear your meaningful and valuable question. I can see questions hovering. <laughs> now, there's always a chance to ask these questions during the lunch break, yeah. which is not too far away. Oh, yeah, and, yeah um, absolutely. Both Paul yeah. and Peter will be here, and yeah. it's actually probably a better way. Yeah. So I might take that opportunity to say thank you both very much for doing just what I asked you to do, which is talk about childhood and poetry and children's poetry. It's been a lovely, a lovely conversation and some wonderfully witty readings. Thank you so, so much. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Going West Audio. You can subscribe to the podcast and our regular updates at goingwestfest.co.nz.